Hello everyone, you are listening to Black Adoptees Identities. I am your host, Christelle Pellicure, and I am a coach and a multidisciplinary creative. Please join me to explore what identity means for adult adoptees and how they form their identity for their own adoption journey. In this podcast, you will hear a variety of views from adult adoptees about their own experience of adoption and how adoption has impacted them and what lessons they have learned along the way. Please note that the guests have been courageous in sharing their stories and some of the content and subject matters can be emotionally challenging and distressing for some individuals. Please use your own judgment whether to continue to listen or not and do look after yourself. And if you are affected by some of the issues discussed, please seek appropriate support and help. In this episode, I am in conversation with Matthew Omowali Anthony, a writer and podcast host. Matthew shared about his childhood in a Sunland town, and we discussed the issue of the adoption system. And Matthew also talked about his piece entitled The Shape of Black, published in Logics magazine. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Black Adoptees Identities. I'm Crystal Pelliquer, your host. And I am today joined by Matthew Anthony, and I'm really excited to hear about his story because I have I've seen part of Anthony's work in the last year from different places. So I'm really excited to find out a bit more about Matthew. Matthew Omowali Anthony, they them, is a student at Minneapolis College, majoring in African diaspora studies. They are the host of Little Did You Know podcast, and their writing has been published in Logics, A Gathering Together, OP, A Madison Anthology of Poets, Visible, Severance Magazine, and more. Their debut poetry chapbook entitled You Cannot Burn the Sun is distributed by We Are Holding This. Mathieu, welcome. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. You know, we started this and was, you reminded me that we actually met like a year ago at the Adoptive Futures. They're not called the Dunbar Project, um, but it was like a, a writing group and that's where we met. So I'm glad to be able to connect again for this. Yes, it was a really um, great um, wor- workshop and I remember your piece was just amazing and I, I was just like, I had, I think I had a, an imposter syndrome at that time because I was listening to your writing and I was like, Oh, my writing is not great. <laughs> I've got this amazing writer in front of me. But you know, that's that's part of the, the adoption journey that the imposter syndrome keep popping up at some point in us. Right. Um, so Matthew, tell us a little bit about your adoption journey. Um, when did you all started? Yeah, so I mean, in general, yeah, the way that I talk about it is that it happens in the context of war, right? Like the 60s there was the civil rights movement in the u.s um but this could have been an anti-colonial struggle that went along with the rest of africa as well and that's not what ended up happening and as a result we've got the war on drugs which ends up actually manifesting as a war on black people 
right, as a response to Black radicalism, destabilizing the Black family, et cetera, et cetera, right? Because Black kinship, these bonds are as strong as, for, as a people. And so the war on drugs brings crack into Black neighborhoods. This affects my mother and my father in different ways. And it ends up being that, yeah, we ended up being put up for adoption. But I'm not sure if I can say this because I haven't talked to my mother specifically about it. But I mean, she she chose white people because, like, you know, they had a PhD and she knew that we would know they weren't our real parents. So we reject them and come back to her. And she apologized for playing God in that moment. But I, I really like for me, that story really says a lot about her desire for us, um, what she was willing to do. Not that I like sanction enough, but I approve of her decision. But like, I'm like, oh, OK, I see what you were doing. You you got what you wanted. <laughs> And so, but then, you know, we we get uh, shuttled out to like this probable sundown town in, in Oregon called Roseburg. Um, this was in the early 2000s. And when I was there, you know, I write about this in different pieces, whether on like Creative Kindred or on Medium or that are published in places like Logic or, but I really believed I was a nigger. I really like not metaphorically, but like I believed it since I was a seven, since I was seven. And because uh, like some white kid had, this church and go get me a hammer nigger because uh, his house burned down. And so our church was like helping him build a new one. So I'm seven years old, helping me. He's like, go get me a hammer nigger. I'm like, go to my adopter. Like what? He called me this. It's okay. Go back to work. And so I just learned like, that's a part of what it is to be as a black person. And I thought, cause I also, there wasn't other black people around as well. Right. So there's not, the white people that I was around didn't have an issue with a black person believing they were a nigger and everything that would entail, right? So I lived life for a while as if as if I was a, a nigger, right? Less than less than human. I really believe that about myself. My twin ends up getting rehomed when we're like 14. Things were such a such a bad situation that like I had found my father on my biological father on our biological father on Facebook. Like, let him know what was going on. Say, hey, please come save us, rescue us, blah, blah. He comes, picks up my twin, leaves me. I said, okay. And so I think that, like, you know, we talk about adoptees feeling, like, abandoned and such. I, like, I, I experienced that on multiple levels growing up. And the situation was, like, I was trying to get, like, emancipated. Like, I was trying to just like get out of that situation. I ended up leaving Oregon when I was like 18, but then I was homeless at 19 because my adopters kicked me out. And then I ended up like as a so-called missionary for like four or five years. And then like in 2020, 21, like a lot of stuff happened that really like uh, people talk about like coming out of the fog. I don't really like that language specifically, but there was this like, I still don't really know how to ha how to explain it, but it was as if like all of this like came up in the same and, and more than everything like disclosed here, but like all of it comes up, right? And so like I was just like from 2021, 2020, I was just out, just out for the count. I was just down, right? Like I was like, oh my gosh. Um, Cause in this time I'm like searching for my mother then for the first time, like seriously then finding meeting my mother and my sisters for the first time, right? Like meeting my father for the first time since I ain't seen him in since I was like 14. Meet seeing my twin again, like all this different stuff. So I was just really like experiencing that part of this so-called journey, which those are joys that I wish I'd never had to like count as joys, you know? And then my father's like, hey, you know, we could we we could get this annulled or something like this adoption. 
And then me knowing some different people, I reach out to Gregory Luce and whatever. And it's like, oh, you actually got to get uh, adopter permission to, I uh, know they have to approve that. So I reach out to my adopter via text. Mind you, we estranged. And I'm like, hey, like, can you, can you do this, please? My mother and my father want this. And she says, nah, because she was afraid she'd have to give my twin up too, right? She thought like this adoption thing legally was like a two for one deal. She's like, if I let you go, then I can let your brother go and I want to keep him. And so, yeah, I mean, Joy James talks about captive maternity, like captive maternal, like captively having to caretake. Like, I feel like there's ways that like this was captive in it because they desired my twin. And we couldn't get the annulment done, but my mother and I figured out a different situation and I am no longer, a, I'm, I'm, got, I'm getting to the place where I'm no longer a boba, which is great. Wow, that's so layered, you know, when you talk about abandonment, you've had all the, yeah, that's keep coming back into your life. So I can only imagine what it does to a person having to relieve that abandonment wound over and over. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's crazy. And I think that's one thing that people don't think about adoption. What's the children and when they become adults, what they have to go through? Because even when we are adults, we have to face the consequences of everything that we've been suppressed all those years. And now we are left to our own device to deal with it. Nobody else is um, there for us. And I'm I'm really surprised about the annulment of your adoption that you have to get the consent from the adopters. But also your brother is going to live with your father. So he doesn't live with the adopters. So I don't understand why. Well, even that you know, is so interesting because even that, that, like that was illegal. Like our adopter was not legally supposed to do that. Like legally, she's not recognized. Legally, she is still his legal mother. Like that wasn't a legal transaction. It was just a trafficking situation. Like, so like that ended up being a situation uh, in Kentucky that like, then the cops are like calling Mrs. Bogart and they're like, this your kid, right? And she's like, no, he's with his father. Like, okay, but on paper, this, this your kid, right? You could gotta come get your son, like, why your son in Kentucky and you in Oregon? She's like, nah. And so there's a warrant, an active warrant out for arrest for child abandonment in, in Kentucky because of that. So, like, it's so complicated, right? Like, the way that the law really tangibly, materially affects Black life, right? Like, mm-hmm. this is a son with his father, and the law is like, actually, is this white person in Oregon? I know, I know your people ain't ever been out there in 200 and 300 years. But this is where we're trying to get your kid again to resettle, even though this woman said, I don't want him anymore, right? And so it's just so complicated the ways that, like, there's this kind of, like, legal abandonment happens, mm-hmm. right? Because, yeah, like, in Kentucky, like, I, I think until, like, a couple of years ago, but it still might be on the records that it can still happen. But this was at least very active, like, in the time that I was adopted and until very recently. But you can, adopters can annul the adoption if they're not happy with the child's race, right? Whereas there's no such similar provision for people who are adopted because a lot of adoptions are transracial or transnational, right? And so that a non-white person could be adopted into a white home that this white home is actually dangerous for actually racial reasons, racialized reasons. Mm. The courts don't maybe take that part in Kentucky, right? Given that they 
provide white people, hey, if you don't like the child's race, but the adoptee can't say, hey, they don't like my race, it's dangerous for me here. <laughs> yeah, and that's still happening quite a lot now. Well, adopters just decide, oh, this is not working for me. It's That also always blew my mind. Like, how can you put a, a child for that again? And that is, a, again, another rejection and abandonment when you have to just reject that child because it doesn't fit with what you had in mind for the adoption. And that's it, right? It's like what you had in mind. Like my my adopters didn't have in mind that they would that real a real loving relationship would have to be an anti-racist and an anti-colonial love between us, right? And so that's a reason why we're estranged because I'm like, look, like you keep saying you love you love me, but like I've told you that like however you're relating to me is not actually how I receive love. So like if that is your love, I'm good on I'm, I'm I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you mentioned that you you're raised in a sundown town. And I mean, for us in Europe, just about imagine what that is, because even you know, to my own mind, I can't even imagine what it could be like. And those towns still exist right nowadays. I, yeah, I understand. Yeah, they do. yeah. So what was your, I mean, you, may, you mentioned a little bit about it, but how was it for, for you as a Black person being raised in a place like that? Yeah, I mean, like Shannon Gibney talks about this in some interview that I heard. She calls it epistemological violence, right? The way of knowing that we have is, is actively always being violated. And so I think like being called a nigger, like that's, that did change me. I'm not just called a nigger, right? Like that changes how I relate to everybody around me. Everybody's around me is white. So I'm like, I serve everybody around me. I remember like when I started to get like 13, 14, 15, I started to realize, you know, cause this is when I started to realize more connections between me and Kentucky are starting to happen. Like University of Kentucky has like the Kentucky Wildcats, like Anthony Davis was playing for them at that time. And I think somehow we was in communication with our father. Like this is like leading up to that time when they our adopted, like give us my twin away. And so, you know, I would, I would not do the Pledge of Allegiance um, in school. And then the kids would be like, well, if you don't like it here, go back to Africa. <laughs> and it was just so interesting to me because like, you know, I'm, I'm seeing that they see me as an African, not just as black, right? Like they're not saying go to, they don't know I'm from Kentucky. They're not saying go back to where you come from as in Kentucky, it's Africa. And so like, I think that there are ways that like this, cause it's around this time that then like I'm discovering like Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali, right? Muhammad Ali's like, you know, I'm not gonna go to war fight. It'd be a Congo, I've done nothing to black Americans, right? It's white people or different things that Malcolm X is saying. And so like, I was just realizing like, okay, you know, these are like my first counter narratives with Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X. And so that, like when Malcolm X is talking about, oh, a slave name, I say X because it's my, I don't want to use my slave name. I'm like, wait, is Bogart my fucking slave? Because when you, when you look up the word Bogart in the dictionary, it says to take and consume without sharing. And so I was like, somebody's playing a joke on me. It's not funny. And so I think like being black, it was like, my, I had one dream and it was to get the fuck out of that town. Like I was like, I'll do whatever it takes. And so like, eventually like I'm 18 or whatever, we get out, we end up in Wisconsin and I'm having to like be in therapy, whatever, because my adopter was like, you can't live with me unless you're in therapy. And then she kicks me out. 
<laughs> um, but this therapist is helping me get in touch with my anger, and da, 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 right? And so I ended up like asking my doctor, like, hey, why did we live there? Why didn't we go somewhere where there are at least more black people? Like, what what? Like y'all knew that shit was good. They're like, you know, we thought about moving somewhere where there's more black people. It's not to be good for you and your twin, but we decided against it. So it's just like, yeah, I live with people who like could consider what our best interests were and actively chose against that whenever it was convenient for them. And that's, I think, what it was like to be Black there was like, in general, maybe people could fathom that like, I needed a better life, but they were absolutely committed to not that as a reality. Yeah, and what you just mentioned about your doctor saying, oh, you couldn't live with me if you, if you don't go to therapy. That's like putting the... The blame right, I'm, like, on I'm you. fucked up because of you. <laughs> Excuse me, ma'am. <laughs> What's about you? What's about you going into therapy? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> wow. Oh my goodness. At those points in time when like she it ends up being sometimes we'd have like sessions together and she she'd weep talking about like, you know, I I feel like I failed it. All I wanted my whole life was to be a mother. I feel like I failed it. She doesn't feel that way now, right? She was humble then, she's not now. And so I think that was like the first part for me when I was starting to realize like, oh, for these adopters, like there is this deep wound. That's one of the things that turned them into adoption, right? And so like trying to like figure out how to hold that grief of like, okay, sure, you did want to be a mother or father or whatever. And for whatever biological reasons, you didn't have that. So you became an adopter. But the way that you engage in adoption is a very white savior way. And that's the problem. It's like, you're not actually making kinship. You're not actually doing love what you're doing is possession what you're doing is bogarting because my mother didn't know it was a closed adoption my father didn't know it was a closed adoption they thought it was open they thought they were they didn't think it was a severance whereas my adopter was like no why would i want to be in a relationship with that? <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's so, so complex and um and and that i always you know when i talk with adoption agency this is what I always say to them. Why are parents adopting? You need to ask what is the reason they're adopting because, and also what are the work they've done on themselves to get to that point to say that these people are safe enough and capable of raising a child. Yeah. And yeah, I think tough. it's not, it's no, not I... really, I don't think, I don't know in the US, but I, I know that. You know, in my case, in my adoption, I don't think my parents even went for that kind of questions. Um, yeah, it's happening like more a little bit, but like also there still is a class thing. Like adoption as a phenomenon is a class thing, right? Like it's poor birthing people giving their children the industry recognized middle or upper classes who would be able to take care of it, right? So it's not a poor child, a poor family to a poor family. That generally doesn't happen, right? And so you know, like I was in, when I moved here to Minneapolis last year, I, I went to Hannah Jackson Matthews uh, works in, in Minneapolis and they were doing this workshop on the 1972 position statement of the National Association of Black Social Workers on transracial adoption. And this is something that's deeply informed my work, but you know, like their their case basically is like, you know, we, we don't think it should happen. And they give different reasons for it. They even talk about like how racialization works in the U.S., right? We're like, okay, this biracial phenomenon, that's not fucking real. You're only calling these children biracial. So white people think that they're less black. 
what about the one drop? This is just a marketing scheme. That's all biraciality is. Mm-hmm. Just trying to siphon our children from us. And 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 so and so you know at that at that workshop though, um, she divided us into groups. And at, at one point, there was this woman there who works in the adoption industry. I'm forgetting her specific role. This black woman. Yeah, I won't say her name. But um, <laughs> she she was saying that you know she works day in and day out trying to get it so that at the very least. Black children are adopted by Black families, but it is a class thing. It's white family comes in, has enough money to take you to Disney World. So boom, that's who, we, that's who the agency is picking, right? That's who did it up, right? And so it's tough because there are so many different things that like do need to be considered in adoption. And culture is like one of these things, like money is maybe another, but like there are ways that like Black folks be like, like Ethiopia does not do international adoptions to U.S. anymore because they're like, U.S., you guys fuck that up. Like, we're not, like Guatemala, I think, does not do that to the U.S. Like, they're in general, like, there is, around the globe, there is more and more realization of the industrialized way that the U.S. practices adoption and how that doesn't actually set up children for successful lives. Like, I I think that I I love adoption as a, as a, care for kids like for whatever reason but what i'm against is industrialized adoption right this is what i'm against i'm against the the logics of the system that intend to disrupt and dismember black family black kinship african family african kinship and traffic these children into homes in the global north it's a wealth transfer yeah i mean i when you talk about adoption as um, a status you know the the wealthy, the rich, adopting poor kids, I suppose. Um, but I, you know, it's it's also a westernized thing because you don't, you know, in Africa there's wealthy people, but there's no white children being adopted by wealthy people in Africa. So it is also uh, a system that was set up by the Western world, right. So right. that's also something that we we hold to keep after remember because mm-hmm. you know I I think white people will be outraged if you start seeing adoption going the other way because like I said there's wealthy people could you know exactly. look after children in Africa but I don't think if that will start to happen I think there will be some outrage in the Western world. But, you know, this part of the thing is, like, the, the white West, they are very aware of their own memory, right? Like, they trace themselves back to Greek and Rome, all this different stuff, right? So, like, they, what they don't want is something to disrupt the mind of whiteness of their future, like, children, right? And so they're able to see it on that level. That's why it's offensive, because adoption is not just me feeding this kid. There are other lessons that are being learned. There's other kinds of formation that is happening. They're against the other kind of formation happening, right? And so that's why white saviorism works that way. There's not a black saviorism, right? Like there's, <laughs> it doesn't inverse because whiteness is the thing that is we, the, the world is told to become like, become in the image of whiteness, yeah. right? Whereas black is is the demon. Black <laughs> is the demon. And so it's like, don't, don't do that. Mm. But that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to be the demon. 
You like to shake things up. Uh, they need to get shaken up, though, right? Yeah, like, no, it's, not that, it's not actually that I like it necessarily. I do find it kind of pleasurable. It's important. No, it's, it's it just needs like, to be. Yeah. I think about I think about the children that I may or may not have. Children that people are already having now, and I'm just like, you know, like this this world that we're in. Like, even with climate change, right? Like, it the world we're in testifies to us every day that it is not livable and will not sustain life under these current conditions if we keep allowing these ways of relation to happen. So it's like things have to get shaken up if we are interested in the survival of our species. No, absolutely. I think it's, it's really important that, I mean, the system needs to change. It cannot continue the way it's been running for so many years. It, it's just, there's too many, especially every time I interview someone, there's a breakdown in that adoption system. So right. it, that just only tell you the system is not right. It's not but working. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing is like, you know, I when, I when I was doing research for this piece that got published, you know, I was thinking about breakdowns in the system too. But then I started thinking about, you know what? It's not an accident that they provided an out to the adopter say if you're unhappy with the child's race. And they didn't offer that same thing to the adopter, right? They are very, the legislators are very aware of the racial and power dynamics of race what the adopter wants they're very aware that like maybe the child could be in a precarious place but that's not the value there right so the system is working how it should like when we said there's, there's a breakdown in the system that allows us to talk as if the people who created the system had our best interests at heart it's never been black or african best interests at heart right these systems that we live in were never created for us but we're expected to give them a grace, like, oh, you'll work it out eventually for me. They're not, they're not trying to do that. <laughs> they're not trying to do that. No, not at all. So where are you in your relationship, I suppose, with your adoptive family, your birth family, with um, your brother? Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, my, my, my pops and I, we ain't talked a couple of years. My mom and I, we good, we talk every week. My adopter, my male adopter is dead. He's been dead since about uh, 10 years ago. My female adopter, we're estranged, but uh, yeah, I don't need her in my life, but there's some information that can be gained from keeping her proximate to my kid. <laughs> okay. That's, um, I mean, yeah, it sounds like you figure out where your boundaries with different people in your life. So that's good. Tell us about your uh, published piece in the Logic magazine. You know, it's a it's a very beautiful piece, and I encourage everybody actually to to just read it because it's really rich and also show how talented you are as a writer. Uh, it's a really really well put together piece. I really love it. Thank you. I mean, as far as for the putting together, shout out to Aaron Wong, my editor, for that. Um, shout out to Kadisha, who actually runs that magazine. But yeah, just like being believed in by these two individuals was really first and foremost, like what was important because I think like telling my own story on my own terms, like that's something that I've been trying to figure out how to do. And I've been like discouraged a lot in different ways, not by people who are like reading my work, but like, I'm like, oh, like, you know, while we're writing, while we're doing some of the research, I'm like, oh, will I get sued for this piece? Like, will I, da, 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 like, what does this mean for like, what is my, like, how much of what I'm trying to write in this piece needs to actually come out to the public? How much doesn't? I don't know, right? And I think it's important because I think Black people should read it. Black adoptees should read it. Like, I think that, like, in general, like, 
people who are black and displaced via adoption, like the stories that we tell can be very helpful for mirroring, right? So maybe there's somebody who's like younger, 10 years younger than me, I'm 28. Maybe there's some 15 year olds. They read my story and they're just like, oh, wow, like I can relate to that. Or some 54 year old, whatever it is, right? <laughs> but so I think like in the sense of like mirroring, like it can be important. But the piece is called A Shape of Black. I, I get that title from Christina Sharp, who in her book, Ordinary Notes, is riffing in relationship with uh, visual artist Torquacy Dyson. And I was just thinking about like, you know, because like the way I grew up, it was I was told as if like blackness was a monolith and black, that what blackness is, is like a nigger, right? And so I was interested in like the shape of blackness that I knew. And so I'm trying to write about that in ways that you know, like one of the things I employ is like a certain kind of citational practice where like there's a lot of citations and footnotes. Those are important because like it's like I'd be taking lines from these different black studies texts and putting them in and there's a specific context in which they're coming in. Right. Like I try to have this piece be in conversation with ancestors, black ancestors, past and present in certain ways, because for me, like, you know, the the, the piece in a way is like mapping my coming into relationship with the ancestors. And this as like a product of severance from being displaced from my kin, right? Like having to figure out like what ancestors are legible, like what is love, right? So in James Baldwin, like a lot of my work, James Baldwin like appears in, because when I read The Fire Next Time, he said, don't, the only way that he's talking to his nephew, he's writing to his nephew, he says, don't ever believe that, the only way that you can be destroyed is by believing you are a nigger. I tell you that because I love you. And when I read that, I was like, oh, nobody's loving you. I now know what love is. I also now know what love is, right? And so the piece is about the ways that I found blood, that I found a love that really meaningfully loves Black people and Blackness and how that's saved me, how that's made me then find my mother. What, what that summer that I mentioned earlier, like going to find these kin in Kentucky, right? What this is like, right? So the piece is kind of like a map. Yeah, and the title is, well, you just say, uh, Shape of Black, Adoption as Theft, uh, Ancestry as Freedom. So I guess you've, you've kind of covered that, you know, how the adoption of taking away so much from your life. And I suppose the, the ancestry part is you reconnecting your family. Is that right? Or is that more even ancestry? Yeah, there's so many different layers to like what ancestry is, right? So like part of it then is just the immediate mother, father, sisters, brothers, right? Part of it is that, but part of it also is reaching back for like a deeper memory, right? Like I like one of the people I reach back towards is like Frederick Douglass. One of the more contemporary people I reach towards is Christina Sharp. I reach towards James Baldwin, right? Like there's a practice of like kinning myself, of making myself family to because because also like in blacks, like I'm in college right now, I'm a black studies major, Africana studies major. Like there's not a lot of work being done that also text, connects to adoption, right? Like in the US, it's family policing tends to be seen through foster care, which is fine. But you know, even Dorothy Roberts, like newest work torn apart, like doesn't rigorously detail the adoption as much as it does foster care and its attendant systems, right? And so that's kind of like where I'm trying to come in in some ways. It's like how to, how to tell these stories that can have a memory that these kinds of violences have been happening to our people for a long time. It's nothing new. It's, it's, not, it's not new. And so like what our ancestors have to say about that, not just my immediate mother, but 
You know, there's spirits who talk to me who name themselves as mama, right? Who are hundreds of years old, right? And these spirits are da -da -da. so some of that appears in the piece too, right? And so like ancestry is is a sacred practice. There's a spiritual ancestors, there's blood ancestors, and and, and all any other kinds of ancestors, right? Literary ancestors. And so it's just and, and, and I kind of just like chalked it up to in general kinship, right? Like I was finding these different kinds of kinship that could like ground me going into the future because I grew up ungrounded, rootless, right? And so I'm like, what, like I need a kind of family because, you know, even, even in the coming back to my biological family, that's not perfect, right? That was one of the big things I had to prepare myself. I was, I was lucky because like 2020, 2021, like, I was online seeing a lot of different about these stories about reunion and I'm just like I knew to prepare myself like oh it could not be perfect or whatever right but I want kin so I had to do that myself mm -hmm. I had to figure that out and so the pieces in general like looking at ancestry in that way too no I love that and I know when we just before we start the recording I did mention that I had to reconnect with my own heritage and do the travel back to Madagascar and I think that for me was really important in my own identity journey to reconnect to all my ancestry side as well and that's in a way really helped me in my journey yeah and I think to do these days and I think that that journey back to Madagascar after that when I came back I was so transformed by it that I decided to just do work in, with the Black community in the UK. So most of my work after that was with African and Caribbean community in the UK. So that's really impacted the way I saw life in a very different perspective than mm. what I've seen before I went back to Madagascar. So yeah, mm. I, really, I really think it's an important piece for a lot of us to reconnect to that side of us. Yeah, and I can relate to the I can relate to the Caribbean influence in different ways too because where I grew up in a sundown town, the other black people that I knew were Caribbean. Like the ones of my age were Haitian adoptees, and so like I was like, there were other like black Americans around as well, but like I didn't count myself as one of them. I was like, I'm more like Haitians, right? And so like the first time that I like left the country, I was like a kid, and I went to like Trinidad and Tobago. Um, and that was the first time that I saw like a black world, right? Compared to my small town of 20,000, that's 99% white, right? So I was just like, oh my gosh, like, is this the kind of world that I was taken from? Like, wow, this is so different, the way people relate, da -da -da -da, all these different things, right? And so it gave me a different perspective on like what loss was. And that was really hard for me, like as a 13 year old, because I was like, you know what? These white people don't, don't understand what I'm even trying to say to them. <laughs> so I like didn't. I didn't say shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> did you do yeah. a DNA test? Did you do a DNA I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I did twenty three in me. Where that your ancestry go back to then? Yoruba, Yoruba, oh, okay. which is so interesting because oh. those people have a really high birth rate of twins, right? Like it's like five percent, oh. whereas oh. the average in the world is zero point five percent. So it's like a one hundred times increase of the birth rate. Um, and when I went to meet my kin for the first time, like a couple of years ago in Kentucky, it was, it was 4th of July, it was a cookout, it was like five sets of twins. I was like, damn, that's crazy. Uh, okay. All right. That that DNA test might be right then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, amazing. Oh, that has been a pleasure talking to you. I always end the conversation by asking my guests 
If they had to give an advice to their younger self or to a young adoptee, what advice would you tell them? Learn from the sun. I think uh, since I was a kid, I've tried to be in different kinds of deep relationships with the sun, right? And I think about the people who come in, who for them, the sun made itself new every day. It grows by its own power, right? There are some things that as people displaced from whatever because of adoption, we need to learn our own power. And that's one of the things that I got learned. From. I'm trying to learn from the sun, but I'm trying to observe the sun. Amazing. Oh, I, I love that. You know, this is the, the white I knew. <laughs> just, <laughs> just, but yeah, I, I, I love that. Thank you so much. And like I said, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And uh, where can people, find, uh, if they want to follow your writing and your work, where can they yeah, find absolutely. you? Absolutely. So my first book is published via weareholdingthis.org. So you could like buy that or you can subscribe for free to my Substack, which is called Creative Kindred. Um, or I got an Instagram. I'll be posted on there sporadically. Um, that's Creative Kindred underscore. Um, but yeah, my handles tend to be Creative Kindred or Can't Burn the Sun. So you just look around for me on Twitter. I'm Can't Burn the Sun. Um, and I'll be publishing shit in different places. This year, hopefully, a lot of different places. So you, you might have to start looking for me. <laughs> well, I'll put the, all the details in the show notes as well so the, the audience can follow you. Thank you so much again for your time and for sharing generously with me. And um, yeah, keep in touch. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. This is Christelle Pellecoeur, and you have been listening to Black Adoptees Identities, where Black adult adoptees share their stories. Please do share and subscribe to our podcast, and do stay connected with us by following us on Instagram at Black Adoptees Identities. Thank you for listening to this week's episode, and until next time, goodbye.